before we get into today's episode, I've created a short questionnaire that will help me get to know you better. Those that fill out the questionnaire will get entered into a draw to win an Amazon gift card. So there's a link in the description for the episode. Click it, fill out the questionnaire, and I look forward to hearing your feedback. Now for today's episode. This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show and today I'm joined with Howard Eisenberg who is a medical doctor with additional postgraduate training in psychology and psychiatry so we're talking a lot about the mind and brain today but and this is where there's a twist he's spent a lot of his time trying to discover the true nature of reality with his book Dream It to Do It so I'm excited to dive in. Howard thanks for joining me. Thank you Mike, welcome to be here, thank you. So I'd be really curious about what people tend to get wrong. What are the things that we think are true, but in fact aren't about how we see the world and how we navigate this? It's a simple question, and yet it's a mind-blowing, complex answer. We have it all wrong, all of it. We think that we are fundamentally physical, material uh, entities, beings. We think we are fundamentally individual and separate from other human beings, other species, even uh, in sentient uh, matter that comprises you know, the, the soil and so on. And it's totally wrong. We think that we have understood how reality, the world works through science. And we've been able to have these almost magical like technological achievements, even allowing you and I right now at some distance to be in conversation and see each other. And we have almost uh, mesmerized ourselves, hypnotized ourselves into thinking, again, we had it so right. We're really on this and, and we're going to the highest quality of life ever in you know previous history of mankind. And the reality is the sad opposite. We don't understand how to have relations with each other. I mean, on one level, I'll go back just even to some of the things like divorce rates and separation rates, around 50%. I mean, it's a big decision one makes to choose a life partner and then break it up and perhaps go from love to hate. Um, if we look at what's happening um, in politics in the world, there's more uh, raw emotion, there's more divisiveness, ugly hatred, and as we know, ending in deaths for many people, be it on the battlefield now in Europe, uh, or on the streets of some of our cities with random attacks. Um, people are really losing it on that level. Um, in terms of our understanding of technology and the environment, global climate change is not a theory. It is a reality. We already are feeling some of the blows, the early blows from it, all too realistically, all over the world. And they're serious blows. And there's no reason to think it will even out or get better at all. It's quite the opposite. Um, I don't want to go down a deep, dark rabbit hole with you, but coming back to my point here, we have it so wrong. We don't know how to get along with each other. We don't know how to have a sustainable relationship with our environment. We don't know how to be a, a murderous species that is eliminating and causing species extinction for so many other species. Do we have that right, you know, to, to, to do this? Um, so coming back to the question, and the, the complex answer. We thought we understood fundamentally what reality is. Like I'm me, you're you, 
uh, we're two people. Uh, we have certain commonalities. We also have some differences, um, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And what we have found at a deeper level of scientific inquiry is something ironically that's very convergent with the ancient teachings of the mystics. Very odd. So we have high-tech physics with expensive, sophisticated machinery and complex computers coming up with the same conclusions that mystics did just from meditation, just from going in to a different level of consciousness. And quite seriously, uh, and I'm not just saying that as someone who's a physician and author of this book, I'm not a physicist, but the physicists are saying that. So I quote many of them uh, verbatim in my book, saying this totally. They say the universe looks more like a great thought than a material entity as we think we understand it, which is separate from us. So that's quite fundamental. And again, coming back to the, why it's important to know this, it's not just some uh, you know, correction of some historical understanding, because we're living life the wrong way. Uh, even if we look at things like you know, stress levels, we so stress ourselves out. Um, yeah. It's like crazy. Most I'm a, a physician, as you know, and most of our illnesses are caused by stress and lifestyle choices. Um, there's a crisis, at least in the Western countries, as you may well know, of obesity. Mm -hmm. And yet you have yeah. starvation in so many other parts of the world. It's like so much is out of balance. And the good news is it doesn't have to be this way. If we understand the truer picture of reality and work with it rather than ignoring it or against it, we'd have an immensely greater quality of life for ourselves as we understand ourselves to be separate entities, which we are to a degree, but only to a degree, and the rest of the whole world. And it, you it would be a win-win scenario. Yeah, so definitely. definitely you know, as opposed yeah, yeah. to having yeah. you know, just a, a great imbalance in, in the economic um, uh, assets and, and control in the world with the so-called you know, 1%. Like something's really at a skew here. It doesn't have to be this way. No, no, it's, it's making me wonder, because you mentioned that reality is a bit more of a thought or an emotion than a physical thing it makes me think of manifesting really it makes me think of that term mm -hmm. and so many people use it in so many different ways so i, I am going to butcher it but for the purpose of this conversation mm -hmm. is there anything that people get right about manifesting anything that you think is missing how can we do something like manifesting in the effective way because some people think they're manifesting when they just sat on their own and not really yes. doing anything about what they're thinking, but then there are people out there that think that they're manifesting where they don't really think about what they do before they do it. So I get right. a funny feeling that the actual answer is a bit of both. And I wonder what your take is on it. So um, two things on that. So yes, there is something to manifestation. And back to the you know reality of the universe, as we understand it being more like a great thought than a material thing. And, uh, you know, that exploded the big bang and just spread out <clears throat> out of nothing <laughs> um but back to you know a better way of phrasing it than just a great thought that's actually a quotation from one of the physicists in my book who, who's very eminent among his colleagues but it's more like um there's a dreamlike quality to reality and we all have dreams uh, some of us remember from different degrees but certainly you know there are times in our lives when we have dreams and we don't know we're in a dream until we wake up and so right now, I'd say in a way, we're in a collective dream. 
And what I'm trying to do is wake people up because I think we're, we're in a state of crisis in the world as I, you know, went over a few things with you, but most recently too, as you know, that the doomsday clock is now set at the historical precedent alarmingly just 90 seconds before midnight, before annihilation of humanity and humankind as we understand it. Um, and these are serious people who are coming up with this. When I wrote my book and it came out in the fall of 2021, the uh, doomsday clock was set to 100 seconds, which again was, you know, frightening precedent. And it's gone further because that was before the Russian invasion. That was before the uh, financial, you know, collapse because of uh, the lack of being able to contain inflation properly. Uh, that was before some of the divisive political things we've seen and some of the, again, global climate change. Um, impacts in different parts of the world very seriously before all of that. Uh, and, and the recent turmoil again in American politics in terms of who you know will take the lead of it. That was all before my book, you know, um, was, was claiming this alarm, 100 seconds to midnight and all these other reasons why we should be concerned. It's gotten so much worse. So my reason for writing the book was a wake up call. It still is even more so. You know, people wake up, realize it doesn't have to be this way. This is almost like madness. We were living back to your other question now, manifestation. Um, it's a term that's bandied about a lot. And in that sense, it's diluted and cheapened and misunderstood. But is there something truly to it? Absolutely. Uh, is, is, is it as simple as just wishing for something? No. Uh, is it as simple as saying a prayer? No. Is it as simple as thinking of something and by law of attraction it just comes to you? No. But, but is it real and is it possible? And is there even a methodology to do it? Yes, and I actually outline that in my book. So the first thing we have to learn to do if we want to be able to manifest what we desire is to calm our mind, quiet our mind, not easy. Uh, in the uh, Buddhist traditions, they talk about the mind being like monkey mind. It's jumping all over the place. And if anyone ever tries meditation and you just try not to think of anything for even just a couple of minutes, let alone half hour or a few hours, uh, it's pretty well impossible. Um, but what you can learn with experience in meditation, and I outline this in my book as well as you know, may know, because I try to be very practical, not just give a theoretical explanation, but things people can actually work with and experience. The, the, the real thing you need to learn in meditation, which is so valuable, is that yes, your mind is busy and you'll have distractions but you have a choice to come back from the distraction. You don't have to be, let yourself just be caught up in it. And when you start doing that, you start experiencing sort of a space between yourself, if you like as who you think you are or, or you know, where the awareness is coming from and whatever it is that's out there. And, and it's a space, like it's not the same thing, uh, to put it more esoterically, the knower cannot make itself the object of its own knowledge. When you, for example, look in a mirror, you see your face, you know it's your face because you've seen it before. <laughs> uh, you maybe, you know, uh, change your expression purposely with a smile or whatever, or, you know, modify your hair appearance and you can modify the image because it's you, right? Except it's not you. It's what you're looking at. What you're looking at is not you. When you see your eyes in the mirror, it's an image of your eyes, but that's not your eyes. Those eyes aren't seeing you looking at the mirror. It's making sense. <laughs> Get a little loopy. <laughs> it is, but I'm going to guess that's the uh, 
that's the underlying thing is is what we see and what we touch actually mm-hmm. objective when all it takes is a couple of layers down and you realize that we're all atoms or like carbon atoms or particles or if you go even deeper then you've got the the things that hold all of those things together instead of just the atoms themselves but mostly empty space apparently so it's one of those situations where like if you're in space you don't necessarily if all you know is space outer space you don't think mm-hmm. that there are humans on this planet because you can't mm-hmm. see them in front of mm-hmm. you but then all it takes is to get close enough to be able to see how busy this planet is to realize oh maybe that is more realistic maybe that is more actual reality than what i was thinking before just by shifting my perspective does that not make you think that reality is all you can see and touch because it's all in your own reference frame and then when you change your reference frame that then is just a different reality it doesn't really negate your previous experience though no, that's you right. wouldn't, it's just, you wouldn't it's know just a, different. a different experience of it and you know arguably um that's what this is all about at this level of reality we call consensual reality and shakespeare put it interesting you know saying we're all the players on the stage in a sense it is somewhat like that um, when we have dreams, usually we populate our dreams. It just seems to happen for some of us, for some it's intentional with other people uh, or animals or, or objects or other places in the world or maybe other worlds. <laughs> uh, it's, 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 it is an experience where we're dreaming up, literally creating from imagination as we understand it, uh, other beings, other entities, and we interact with them. They, they seem to have autonomy. I mean, they, they seem to be able to talk, to move, to make their own decisions, to do things that may affect us, good or bad. Um, but it's illusion. At a deeper level, it's just delusion. So back to manifestation, if we're still on the track here. <laughs> so that when you calm your mind, when you learn that you are not what you're aware of, you're what is aware of things, if you like, but you're not those things you're aware of. When you learn that, you're experiencing sort of as a, a space between yourself and anything else, whatever it might be. Uh, outside, you might say, even your emotions, your sensations, whatever it might be. And in that space, you are able to go to a deeper level of your being. Just like an iceberg, when we see it, there's about maybe 10% on the surface of the water, 90% below the waterline, you don't see it. There's a much, much deeper part of our mind, of our consciousness, all the way deep, right to God consciousness. There are so many religious books that explain this, but we haven't understood them properly. One of the things that I do in my book is go through the various major religions and show the commonality to show where the signal is as opposed to the noise. So so once again, we quiet the mind and we get access to this deeper level. We're not as restricted, but what we sometimes call limiting beliefs. You know, one example I use in the very beginning of my book where I say the chapter things are not as they seem is in teaching the martial arts like karate, taekwondo, especially when it's young children, you know, eight, 10 years of age. One of the exercises they have them do is use their bare hand to smash through a wooden board. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. Some of these are really young kids. I say eight to 10, my my 10-year-old did it, for example, uh, many years ago. And again, there's nothing on the hand. It's, It's bare. It's one blow. It's a real piece of wood, and it's not balsa wood. It's real wood. But here's the interesting thing. They're not taught to break the board by hitting the board. They are taught to strike beyond and through the board. 
See, when you hit the board, you're hitting a barrier. When you're going beyond the board with your intention, you're beyond that barrier. Now, obviously, some of these things I'm describing are, to be honest, co complex. So I'm trying to use ordinary English, but that's what the book's about, you know, to explain this, as you know, in much greater depth. Okay, so when we've learned to calm our mind somewhat, to access that space, we have this deeper resourcefulness of knowledge and power when we're in that space. And then we work with intention. You know, what, what is your intention for manifestation? Is it well-being physically to get over some illness? Uh, is it to have some breakthrough contact to further your career? Is it to meet the uh, romantic partner of your dreams? You know, whatever it might be. Uh, it's, it's not limited in, that, in those respects. But you have to be clear. So if, if you want to meet, for example, the, you know, the, the, the romantic partner, let us say, of your life, um, it has to be clearer, more detailed, more explicit almost, not so vague. So like, well, what do you think that person will look like, sort of? Um, what kind of physical shape will they have? You know, thin, rotund, um, Will they be athletic? Will they be, you know, slender? Um, what age will they be? Uh, perhaps for some people, physical appearance, even racially, whatever it might be. You, you need a gender <laughs> for some. You need to be very specific in that imagery. So we, now we're dealing with two parts. So there's the intention, and then there's the imagination. And the more vivid your imagination of what you're desiring, the more likely you're able to achieve its manifestation. And then the other, the fourth sort of component. So that there's the calming, there's the intention, the imagination, and the fourth component. And it's not least, it's just four, it's belief. You have to have belief that it will be, it will happen. Not hope, and again, not a prayer, I repeat, not a wish. You really have to believe it. Like the kids who break through the wooden board by believing, if they strike through the board and not hit the board, but beyond the board, that's their intention. There's no hesitation. They do it. And by the way, there's no pain. There's no bruising. And the many adults would be asked to do the same thing. You know, they, they would think, you know, it's impossible. You'd hurt yourself and maybe embarrass yourself. The kids do it with one blow, first blow. Because they believe and yeah. they've imagined. And it gives them a power and energy to cut through things. Now, the other thing, coming back to your question of manifestation, so that's sort of the technology, the methodology, which I go into more detail in the book. But I, coming back to the nature of reality and the dreamlike quality, and even physics, again, coming back to that. So in physics, as you know, they, they work with elementary particles, and they've worked with fields of interaction. And as we've become more refined in understanding of physics, and the technology has also improved in terms of what we can observe and modify and play with, increasingly comes to the conclusion that ultimately there are no physical particles as we understand them. There are just zones of probability, waves of probability. And it takes the act of human observation to collapse the field of probability into what we would call a particle. And that if we don't observe it, it doesn't become that particle. So they're saying that there's an intrinsic connection between what we think is the material reality out there and our consciousness, whether we knew it, like it or not, that, that is how it is. But coming back to this point, 
So you have these zones of probability. So increasingly, as we get into quantum mechanics, which is modern physics at the edge, leading edge, they're talking about more like probabilities of things, of almost everything. And I think that's also true fundamentally of the nature of reality or of the universe. So my point is that I think there's a certain level of randomness. Uh, this sounds strange to put it this way, we're using you know, conventional human terms. That's hard to use different frames of references with the same words sometimes. But if you think of the dreamer again, having a dream, we, we, we dream partly automatically, but there's also situations in which even during the daytime, if we're bored, we find ourselves dreaming, you know, because we're just bored. And so we sometimes use dreaming with awareness, sometimes not, that it's a form of entertaining our mind when there's nothing else particularly for us to be doing or focused on or just in deep sleep. And it wouldn't be entertaining to us, these dreams, these daydreams, if it was absolutely predictable. Like if it was the same, you know, movie show <laughs> uh, or TV show repeatedly every time you were to daydream, it would get really boring and maybe even noxious, you know, like almost painful. Yeah. Same mm -hmm. thing every time. So we have this variety and I think we need it. And I think that's part of why we have these monkey minds because it, it wants to go all over the place all the time. So my point is that there's a certain essential randomness and I think the intrinsic design of reality itself to keep it in a sense, more entertaining, more stimulating. It's not just about good and bad, it's much more complex. So when you are doing all the right things for manifestation, as I understand it, it doesn't guarantee that what you want to manifest will absolutely happen. But what it does do, it greases the wheels of probability in your favor. It makes it much more likely that what you desire, if you use that methodology, will indeed happen. And by the way, both for ourselves individually and collectively for our world, which again is why I wrote the book. Yeah, it makes me think actually of all of the things that you described gives you the clarity so that the actions that you're taking increase probability again. It's almost like the the actions that you would take to get as clear and specific as possible helps you decide what actions to take, helps you decide what path to go down and also what to avoid as well. Like If you look at we use romantic partners as your example that you gave before, if you're looking for someone that's athletic, okay, where are we going to find those people? You're not going to go to certain places. You're not going to frequent places that you're never going to meet the person that you've just mm -hmm. spent about half an hour writing down or an hour writing down. Right. And then you start thinking about, okay, well, what kind of person would they be attracted to? Something yes. that you've got in common, something that keeps them curious about you, mm -hmm. that kind exactly. of thing. Yes. And you start outlining the person that you would need to be to be able to be appealing or attracted or attractive to mm -hmm. that individual that you've written down as well. So I, I picture being specific and being clear, they go hand in hand a little bit to make everything else easier. I imagine manifesting being easier if you think of it that way. Absolutely, yes. And, and when, again, when you're you know, calming your mind, as I said, you're accessing a greater level of consciousness, which, which has almost infinite resourcefulness in terms of what it you know, can bring you in terms of knowledge, if you want to put it that way, uh, and power. Uh, and as you may remember, I, I have a chapter in the book, a whole chapter devoted simply to showing that 
all of the major scientific inventions, all of our technology, and I, again, say that categorically, all of it came from imagination. And I give some, you know, historical detail to show and, and prove that contention. All of it, it comes from inside. Everything does, because it is all coming from a different level, which we sometimes call, you know, the source, the ultimate source, uh, or I use expressions for a mutually universal mind, or some people refer to it as God or God consciousness. I listened to a science, I think it was a podcast or a documentary, I can't remember, and they were measuring the stretch and contraction of space and time. So you have to go with me a little bit. Mm-hmm. And they said that there was a guy that said that basically the device that they're using to measure it also stretches and contracts as well. So how do they know that the measurement that they're getting is accurate if the whole thing moves? And they described it as, okay, well, it actually measures the difference between it because the amount that it stretches and contracts would be different than the device that's measuring it. So they just basically calculate the difference between the two things, and that's the actual measurement, if that makes sense. And then when you said that thoughts, waves, energies become particles when we observe them, that made me think of that thing where things change when they're being observed. And then you you kind of alluded to the fact that things are created when they are being observed mm-hmm. and then revert back to the way they would be if they weren't being observed. Does that that actually adds to the confusion though? Because then is all the information that we think is real is only that way because we've observed it. We yes, think it's th- true, but it's not. It's just what we're seeing. It's just what we're right. observing I mean, be- and what we're Before measuring. Galileo, people thought they understood, you know, the relationship of the earth to the rest of the universe. Um so there's been many times when we thought we, and even now as we were starting our interview today, when I said uh, we fundamentally don't understand at all how reality works, and that's why we, we're having so much personal suffering and turmoil uh, in our world. Um, we need to be uh, more humble, more open to the, the possibility that, again, not only do we not know at all, I repeat, but we may be totally wrong. And, you know, when you look at some of the indigenous cultures, some of which still remain, um, they were able to coexist in harmony with their environment, uh, other sentient beings, the inanimate environment too, as we understand it, uh, in harmony. Uh, and, and they had an interesting, you know, different way of approaching things from a planning point of view. Uh, one of the ways it was described uh, in uh, America was the law of seven generations. And the notion was that they would think out the potential implications, consequences of any major decisions to seven generations in their ability to imagine the future, just, you know, uh, ancestors, descendants. Um, whereas we have this very, you know, short term way of looking at things and we're led mostly by fear and greed. And we don't have that again, that more detached longer term, you know, perspective and wisdom of the bigger picture. Uh, so again, I also use the example of, you know, there's different lenses in which we can look at things. Uh, even right now, for example, if many of us have these uh, cell phones, which have their built-in uh, cameras, um, or if we have the, the, the uh, traditional cameras or standalone devices, 
many of them these days, if not all, have some option that it gives you of whether you go into a wide angle view of whatever it is you're taking a picture of, such as some large landscape, or a much more tighter view and close up, such as maybe telephoto if you're doing a facial shot or trying to get a bird or something like that. So it's you see the same thing outside of you, but by modifying in a sense the lens adjustment in your camera, you see it differently. And if you then take a picture, you capture it differently. And if all you see then afterwards is a photograph of a certain scene, and you think that really is the scene, you may or may not be correct because maybe a more widespread one would show you something very different. Maybe what you think, for example, is a real natural scene. It is just uh, a setup for uh, a movie. You know, they've already created just facades of buildings and so on, so it isn't even real. So we need to be a little more humble in terms of what we really know, uh, even in, when it comes to things like political discourse, which unfortunately these days has become again very raw uh, and even dangerous. Um, we, we need to remember part of the historical teachings again of so many of the indigenous cultures and you know, even to use a, a more familiar frame of reference, the, the Christian Bible, you know, like God is love. And when we're having a loving relationship with others, you know, we're, we're following the golden rule. We're, we're treating others as we would want to be treated, you know, kindly, gently, hopefully. And it's not just some old idealistic notion. It's fundamental. When we choose to, as human beings in, in this consensual reality, we feel we're somewhat separate. But as I said, it's part of it, it's not all of it. But when we choose to become aware and concerned about the plight of someone else or other peoples or other countries, we call that altruism. You know, it's compassion. And if we act on it, if, if we try to do something personally to help them, whether it's um, literally in person in some way, uh, or by perhaps sending some funds somewhere to help people out in need for various reasons, when we're doing that, we are experiencing a reduction of stress in ourselves from everything else we are dealing with. A lot of stress these days, and we know that even you know at a hormonal level, if we do blood sampling, when a person is coming from that compassion, that altruism, that caring, like stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol go down, and the feel-good hormones, even like dopamine and oxytocin, go up. So when we do good for others, we end up feeling good. And the reason for that, I think fundamentally in terms of more understanding of reality is because fundamentally we are all really connected at a deeper, not so visible level, going back to the iceberg analogy. What you see is not all there is at that level. It's just the surface. So what kind of things would you suggest to people if everything's changing all the time and sometimes things don't exist unless you're watching them? How do we navigate life knowing this? Because it can be confusing for some people. People might be listening and thinking, so what is important then? Like what matters? Like what do I need to get by? Because it's hard to think this way and you know, maybe not feel overly important or not 
you know, avoid being depressed all the time and not knowing what's real anymore, what's important anymore. How would you suggest we get through the day for want of a better expression? Like if people are really struggling to wrap their head around this, a lot of things stop being important stop being meaningful, stop being desirable mm-hmm. well, with disinformation. As I explained in my book, again, and as mentioned a few times today as we're talking, this is a level of reality as we experience it. You and I being somewhat separate, the listeners, viewers, however, you know, being somewhat separate and so on. But on our level, we're not all separate. At a level that we're not currently aware of so much, we're all totally connected. We're all coming out of the same source. This level is a level of reality. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. It's just a level of reality. And in this level of reality, where we're separate beings in these physical bodies, there are consequences if we aren't careful for our own health or safety. And there are consequences when we might uh, treat someone else aggressively. They can bleed. They can be injured. They, they, they can die on this level. Um, pain is real. You feel it. <laughs> Uh, you know, bleeding, if, if it's uncontrolled, you do get weaker and weaker, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's important to appreciate this is not simply not real. It's just not the whole picture. It is a level that counts. And if we understood this connection and treat others more, again, according to the golden rule, you know, do unto those you haven't do unto you, we would totally change the quality of our life and the life of the whole world. And that, and that is the wiser path. We were taught that in part through you know, religions, which have fallen by the wayside with the domination of materialistic science. But I go back and I show that that wisdom is actually now totally reinforced by the discoveries of modern science. And it explains why our world sort of has gone mad and the solution to it. It also means going back to Shakespeare's way of putting it raw with players on the stage is it's not totally scripted by somebody else. In other words, you don't have to just act the script you were given, as it seems. You can improvise. Improvisational acting. Maybe don't realize that, and that's part again of the wake-up call. You don't have to, as when I also still do psychotherapy and I teach my patients, no matter what happened to you, no matter what kind of person you were, you don't have to be who you were going forward. It's possible to change so many things when you approach it in this positive, resourceful way. One of the things that I'd be really curious about, Howard, and something that I've I've heard the world behind the world. As, am I wording that right? Like talk yes. us through what what that means. Oh, it's a term I, I use in my book, the world behind the world. So again, we have the world of appearance. Uh, in part, what I mean is our consensual reality that we're all experiencing right now. And that's just, again, a level, as I said, of reality. Um, just like, for example, when thinking again at this level, we have our night dreams or our you know, daydreams. Um, we're experiencing something that seems real to us, but we also know afterwards, oh, we're just a level reality. We're just a dream reality. The deeper reality, as I, I was uh, coming back to earlier, is a dreamlike quality. So. It's as if like you have this ultimate being, omnipotent, omniscient, knowing everything, controlling everything, 
traditional notion in many cultures and religions of God. And so if God had all knowledge and all power and was just solitary, because God is everything, um, that would be like almost painful, like to be aware and be able to have all this power and yet aware of nothing and control of nothing. <laughs> I mean, we just see almost like a more of a <laughs> theoretical existence than a sort of fuller, you know, substantial yeah. existence. Mm-hmm. So the understanding is that we are all extensions in a sense from the source or from God in the world. And that's why, if you want to think of it in biblical terms, why we were created to, 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 to create more fullness in the consciousness, in, in the mind, in the sense of God. I'm using these words again awkwardly because using human terms to apply something in a much deeper frame of reference. But I, I hope that you know, makes it somewhat more tangible to understand it that way. And coming back even to manifestation, you were asking earlier, so one of the technologies I also talk about, aside from the manifestation technologies as such, but separately somewhat, and it, it can be used that way, is lucid dreaming. So in lucid dreaming, instead of experiencing, how should I say, just spontaneous dream experiences, be it at night or during the daytime, um, that just seem to happen and you're just aware of them. In lucid dreaming, you can choose while you're still dreaming to start modifying the dream. You can also, uh, with lucid dreaming, choose to dream what you want to dream. So for example, if you wanted to dream up a creative way of solving some problem that was, you know, bedeviling you in your working day hours, you may well be able to do that. And I give a number of examples again with some of the scientific inventions, and that's exactly how they were invented. The inventors had dreams and they played with the dreams and extracted from those dreams things that we then could use in this material reality. Some of the most basic things you can imagine. That's how Einstein started when he was around 16, by working with his imagination. It wasn't through using calculators <laughs> or, or being in a lab of any sort. It was his mind. Yeah, it's, it's weird when when you picture it that way. But then is, is lucid dreaming something that we can all do? I'm yes. Like, yeah. And that's so, why I give the instructions in the book for it. Yeah. I, I do think we all can do it. How would you suppose people could start to at least feel like they're in somewhat, I don't want to say control, but they can influence the dream. Because I've heard that you can, if when you're dreaming, mm-hmm. you start to tell yourself that it's a dream. So you start to reinforce the fact that it's not real, that you are in fact dreaming. Um, is that effective where you start to convince yourself that you're dreaming it reminds me of um inception actually have you seen that that film inception when they try to mm-hmm. uh, dreams within dreams within dreams yes. and influence outcomes mm-hmm. that kind of thing um that, that's, that's how i picture it. it's kind of where i got most of my information from if i'm mm-hmm. being brutally honest howard uh, mm-hmm. it is a film mm-hmm. so <laughs> it's not going to be accurate but how do you suppose people can start to feel like they're able to influence their dreams it, it could be done in two different ways, partly as you suggest, which is if they learn to just become aware when they're having a dream, spontaneous dream, that it's just a dream without waking up. All right. So that would be one way. Another way would be to dive in instead with an intention of what you want to dream and, and have that, you know, dream experience. Um, in both cases, again, we're working with awareness and some of the principles of manifestation, right? So uh, you need to have some ability to calm your mind. Um, and 
in the book, I give a, a, all the sort of fundamental steps for just anybody to make your question to be able to do lucid dreaming. Now, some people pick it up much more quickly than others. Some of us, for example, are, how should I say, naturally more imaginative. It's like easy for us to imagine other things, you know, visually or mechanically in terms of some invention and, or some apparatus and so on. And some of us are not. So if you already have that, you know, current ability to have a fairly vivid imagination capability, it's going to be a lot easier for you. Um, but if you don't, and I don't get it this level in, in the book, at, at a more granular level, but you can also teach yourself. So for example, you could take some object, you know, whatever, a pen, uh, whatever it might be, simple object, look at it carefully, perhaps even touch it, move it around a little bit, then close your eyes and then try to imagine again what you saw exactly as you can, you know, the, the colors, the shape and so on, and play with that with different objects. You start uh, educating your ability or removing, let's say, the filters which prevented it from being able to more vividly imagine things. So that's something you could do even before you start the actual, you know, lucid dreaming exercise itself. But one of the uh, interesting ways that it was described in so-called fiction literature, um, and it's still controversial, by Carlos Castaneda, who was an anthropology student uh, studying for his doctoral degree in the United States, and did field research with some of the South American Indian and Mexican cultures, uh, and was initiated supposedly into, you know, their knowledge and their ceremonies. And one of the techniques described when you had your question on lucid dreaming, which your listeners may want to work with easily, is try to remember going forward that when you have some dreams coming up, at some point you will remember in the dream to just look at your hands. Let the, the dream just continue, but that will be the signal. So you've had the intention of inception going into your dream, you know, and realizing, yes, <laughs> and, and then letting it, if you want, just flow on its own. But when you've done that, you, you've made contact with a set of level by choice, by intention. So that's an easy exercise to keep in mind. Try to remember, you know, going forth over the next several nights or weeks as it might be for some people, at some point to be able to remember this, look at your hands, no matter what else is going on for a moment. And that will be your connection to that level. And once you have that connection, that's sort of a portal, so to speak, it'd be much easier to go back to it more robustly. While you were saying that as well, it made me think, actually, I wonder what your your take is on this, is the idea that most of reality is simply what we remember. So where everything becomes a function of memory as opposed to reality. What, what do you think? Well, I, I, I take it you know down deeper and say that it's all about consciousness. So, you know, memory is about consciousness. And, you know, if you don't remember things, you remember inaccurately, there's a deeper level of consciousness where that, you know, more correct information is available. It's all about consciousness all the way down. You can't, you can't, as one of the physicists said, you can't get beyond consciousness. There is nothing outside consciousness. There, like, put another way, if, if you think of God as the divine grand dreamer, th there is nothing outside of that. There, within it, within the dream, it can be populated by God. But it's not like there's other gods. The way we, we conceive of it, you know, being the ultimate yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. So how would you make the distinction between consciousness and awareness, given that people would have to be conscious of it in a way to be able to impact it? Well, as, as you've alluded to, there's different levels of, of, of consciousness and awareness. Um, there are times we think we're, 
really, you know, totally appropriately aware of things. Uh, and we're not, I'll give you an example with, for example, stage hypnosis. We can bring someone from the audience on the stage, you know, hypnosis and convince them that they're a famous singer and they're just, you know, excited to, to, to do their debut performance in this locale. And then someone who's not only a singer and dancer will perform somewhat well and totally out of their normal character. And, and they don't think they're being controlled. You know, so it's, it's all levels of consciousness. And, and even with things like, you know, brainwashing, when you intentionally try to change someone's sense of reality, or things like the Stockholm Syndrome, when people have been uh, forcibly taken captive, but it then eventually, for their survival, somewhat not uh, consciously fully, they start identifying with, with you know, their, their, the people who captured them, the aggressors. And sometimes they even try and defend them like with the Patty Hearst, you know, situation back in the US many years ago. It's weird, again, reality, as they say, it's plastic. That's why, again, my first chapter, things are not as they seem. <laughs> it's not so fixed as we have assumed and thought and limit ourselves to think. It's interesting that you bring up plastic because it made me think of the brain as well, how the the brain's neuroplasticity is that's quite right. a yeah, long way. That's correct, term. Yeah. Um, how, how do you fit that into the idea because if everything is consciousness and everything is how we perceive it how we're seeing it how we're absorbing it mm -hmm. if the brain then changes along with it does this not imply then that everything is in flux everything changes and everything yes and and one of the buddhist principles is you know um the the principle of uncertainty you know that that nothing is absolutely certain and the principle of impermanence, nothing is permanent. So they're getting back to, there's some very old, you know, philosophical, religious, indigenous teachings that are totally convergent with our understanding now with supposedly, the, you know, the, the benefit and enlightenment of science. So how would you propose people wrap their head around, I guess, being okay with this. The conversation's gotten pretty deep pretty quickly. Some people are probably struggling wrapping their heads around it. Other people are trying to figure out, well, how can I be okay with all the impermanence and all the uncertainty going on? How can you how can you sleep at night, Howard, knowing all this? How do you actually so, like, get so by? Coming, so coming back with things like impermanence, when you understand it, so you're not you know, so shocked or upset about it, um, it's a different, again, awareness perspective on how you see things and how they affect you. So when you, for example, work with the principle of impermanence and you realize that things that you value, people that you value in your life may not always be there and don't take them for granted. Be more mindfully aware. We say in the center in the here and now, which is, you know, the, more of the reality than what was past or the future we sometimes anticipate or fear. Um, and when bad things do happen, there's the principle of permanence also helps us understand the, the painful feelings we may be experiencing, they will pass, they won't last. Like the, the Buddhist uses this notion of like thoughts and feelings and events are like clouds overhead. They do move, they do pass through the sky. And so part of what they also teach in, in, in the Buddhist way of working with this is the concept of non-attachment. So don't be too attached to things or people because of impermanence. Things change. But value what you can while you can. 
like the expression, you know, smell the roses. So back to your question, how do I sleep at night? This helps me. Plus where we started, <laughs> there's so much <sighs> horrid problems in our world right now. Mm -hmm. um, horrid. And yet I'm choosing hope. That's why I wrote the book. That's why we're having this conversation. Is it easy? No. I use discipline. I, I, I use this expression with my patients sometimes. You have a choice of having a cup half full mindset or a cup half empty mindset, or if you like, optimism, pessimism. I, I choose to work with a cup half full mindset for the possibility. You know, that the prospects that I, on my own at this stage, I'm 76 now, by the way, could write a book that would be a global call for the whole world that could help totally turn things around. You could say that's lunacy, it's crazy. But I went for it. And why did I go for that? Because I don't want to just feel like a, a passive victim that, you know, it, it's all over our control. And uh, it's just unfortunately going to be a very sad, you know, dystopian future ending for us. I, I don't want to just go with that, even if that what comes up emotionally and so much around us in so many different ways. I choose to imagine something different. And since everything comes from imagination, I absolutely know it's not impossible. And I thank you also for being, you know, a co-conspirator <laughs> and helping me get it out there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're all connected, as I said, you know, we're all in this together. It must be a skill to be able to let things not to sink in. You know, the idea of, like if everything's impermanent, everything's changing, bad things happen, good things happen, lots of different things happen all around the world. And some people are aware of them, some people aren't. And mm -hmm your ability to let them not stick with you or not impact you in, in any real negative way. Is that a skill? Is that something that you simply just build up over time, like a muscle? Like how do you train yourself to be in that state? For some people, they really have a hard time letting things go. And then for some occurrences, it's probably more realistic for it to stick around like real tragedies probably you owe it to them in a way to think about them and to consider them and to let them do their thing almost inside your head otherwise you almost trivialize a lot of the negativity in a way at least that's what some people might think how do you go about things like that and how would you help people build this resilience and build this sense of okay well things happen i'm able to move on not let them impact me so much it sounds like a skill that some people might actually need more of oh i i think they need it tremendously these days because people are so stressed out a lot of people are just numbed by all that's happened and the craziness uh, many are distracted with in part for example social media and conspiracy theories and groups um, and many people these days have brain fog uh, from consequence of long COVID. They don't know it, but they do. Uh, so there's been a great dumbing down almost uh, of intelligence, you know, globally, sadly, and it's increasing as well. But back to your question about resilience. The practice of meditation can be extremely helpful in this regard because you cut out so much of the noise and you get closer to you connect it to your source, to, as I said, uh, almost infinite knowledge and resourcefulness in so many different ways. So it, like, as I say in the book, the only way out of this mess we have is in and learning the resourcefulness within. 
the kingdom of God is within you, not out there. Um, but back to your question too on, you know, the needs people have for resilience. So part of my own specialization medically is in what we call stress management. Uh, and I'm also uh, working on what's called life coaching. And I think some people, not just because of my own work, but because I know of these things, can really uh, greatly improve the quality of their life if they'd work with a good therapist or life coach. And some people think it's, it's weakness to go to such you know, specialists uh, for assistance. I would say it's not necessarily weakness, it could be wisdom. And I won't name names, but I know some of the most famous people in the world, historically and currently, who absolutely have had coaches in their background. It, it, it's, it's just be smart. To let the expression on, you know, two heads are better than one. Uh, if you're having trouble figuring things out, coping with things, and there are people who may have that expertise, because resilience can be taught, it can be learned too. Um, if someone takes the time to properly understand what I've said in my book, it would it greatly increase their resilience and resourcefulness. It's a deep book. It, it's one that takes more time than a normal book. You have to go back, reflect, take space. And as you may know, it's available as an audio book too. And I think for some people, the combination is even better, you know, to both read the book and hear the book. And I purposely chose a narrator who's not myself, which is maybe unusual for an author. And I, I chose <laughs> someone who's not my gender purposely too. Uh, it's a female former BBC announcer. It's very professionally done, but it's a suit a different voice because what I'm also trying to teach in this book and, and now as we're talking is the negative consequences getting too caught up in our egos. For one thing, again, it's more in the illusion or delusion of separation. And, and the ego keeps trying to feed itself. It, you know, it wants more, wants to be better than. It's, it, it's not where satisfaction comes from. And it's what causes so much of our problems in the world today. It's, I'm actually working on a book right now on ego management, in a sense, seriously. Yeah. Oh, right. That's, so you've that's got the key uh, almost, another you know? book in the works as well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well howard it's been great to have the conversation hopefully when the next book comes out we can have you on again but for those that want to enter your world how can people do that so be social media how can you find the book that sort of thing well the easiest way to find the book would be online uh, there'd be some bookstores that can order it but generally it's online through uh, uh, broadly speaking you know amazon uh and there's also amazon uk but there may be other online uh sellers the U.S., Barnes & Noble uh, is another major one. Uh, here in Canada, Chapters, Indigo. Um, as far as social media, the main social media I work with is LinkedIn. And that's because I, I only approach it basically for professional networking and not social gossip. How are thanks the book so title, joining just, me. Uh, just to come back to it again, the full title of the book is actually uh, somewhat larger. It's Dream It, To Do It, The Science, and The Magic. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Those that are listening, feel free to subscribe, share the show, tell others, and also leave a review wherever you are listening in to your podcasts. Howard, thanks so much for joining me. I look forward to keeping in touch. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. Be well. Thank you.